Amen. And if you have your Bible this morning, you can go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to finish out the chapter this morning that we've been in for the past several weeks. Uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, there should be one uh, somewhere scattered through the seating area. Uh, you can just flag somebody down. They'll pass it to you. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2. Are you guys freezing out there? It seems really cold in here. I mean, I've got an overcoat that I'm not going to be using for the next 30 minutes or so. If somebody wants it, it's right up here under, the, under my chair. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 10. And verse 10 strikes me as one of the most subtly drastic claims, at least in Hebrews, if, if not in all the New Testament. Here's what verse 10 says. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Do you see what's drastic about that? The sentence is talking about the Lord of the universe. Calls him the one by whom and for whom everything exists. Every time God's status as creator gets cited in the Bible, it's it's about picturing him as the one who gets to do anything that he wants. He was completely free because he's the only reason that there's something and not nothing. And yet this one, this Lord of the universe, by whom and for things all, uh, by whom all things exist and for whom all things exist, in his desire to bring many to glory, we're told here that it was fitting that he do it in this one particular way. You get that? Not that it was creative for him to do it this way. Not that it was an ingenious idea even, but that it was fitting. In other words, it was appropriate. It had to be this way. If God wants to, if the, if the one who created everything that is and who's the only reason anything exists wants to save many sons and bring them to glory, then it's, he's going to have to do it through the suffering of their founder. Why is that? That's a huge claim. It's implying that there's a standard God's got to meet, right? That the one who established the rules by which the whole universe works has rules that he must abide by that are somehow entrenched in his character that if he were to break them, he would not be who he is. Have you ever wondered, uh, I certainly have wondered, why Jesus had to die? Why if God wanted to save people, he couldn't just do it in a way that just sort of doesn't hold their sins against them, Right? And in some other, why did he? Why did he have to send his own son? Why did he enter into this world and then die if he wanted to save people? Doesn't that seem a little bit arbitrary, or maybe maybe just unnecessary? If he's truly free, he could do what he wants. And this passage is saying yeah, that's not true. That he couldn't save people in any way that he wants. That he that he had to do it in this one particular way. Why is that? What was fitting about the suffering of the author? Of our salvation. The point of the passage is that a Savior who was one of us, who was a brother to us, had to suffer for us. And here's what we want to get. We want to take we want to ask one deeper question. Why did it have to be this way? And what makes that good news for us? A Savior who had to be one of us, a brother to us also had to suffer for us if God was to lead many sons to glory. Why? Why was that necessary? I'm going to try to get at it through two different angles. I think the text gets us there. We're talking about our suffering brother, why he had to be one of us, why he had to suffer. By his suffering, point one, our brother stands for us. And by his suffering, 
our brother goes before us. That's where we're headed this morning. Let's start by reading the text together. If you found it, Hebrews 10, or excuse me, Hebrews 2, verse 10, would you stand with me in honor of God's word as we read? This is the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 2. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. You can be seated. By his suffering, our brother stands for us. What I hope came through just in this quick reading of the passage is just how regularly, how over and over again, this theme of Jesus' solidarity with us, him becoming one of us, like us, comes through. It's like a thread that ties the whole paragraph together. Think back on verse 11. It says, The one who sanctifies, Jesus, and those that he sanctifies, us, have to have one source. I think it's talking about his humanity. He had to become like us. Then jump to verse 14, the next big step in the, in the passage. They share The children share in flesh and blood. His siblings share in flesh and blood. So likewise, he had to partake of flesh and blood. He had to become one of us. Then jump ahead to verse 17, the next step in the argument. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. You see how that thread ties together the whole passage? He had to become like us. Why? Why does he keep coming back to that point? Here it is. This is what we're going to unpack. Only one who was of us, who belonged to our group, could stand for us, could actually be our representative. Only one who was of us had the right to be working or be, be counted as working on our behalf, to stand for us. Now, this, is, this is a concept that's going to be a little bit harder for us to connect with because we're Americans and everything is about, about individual performance, right? I mean, family does matter, but typically we resent the people who get where they are because of their family, right? We think about you know, the wealthy northeastern elite, you know, who had everything handed to them on a platter. And what we're looking for is somebody who can lift themselves up by their bootstraps. You know, we love, we love politicians and athletes and success stories, people who did it on their own. It's almost like it's cheating if someone stands for you and you get where you are because of them. But, but in the worldview of the Bible and in really the whole culture that the Bible comes out of, it, they didn't see things that way at all. Think back to, to the, the many stories in the Bible where a representative is the one that matters. Adam acts as a representative for all the human race, and his action implicates others. 
Abraham acts as a representative for everyone that God plans to save. God comes to him and says, I'm going to found a family through you and your faithfulness to my covenant will continue that line on through, through to the salvation of the world. Think about David who act as a representative for his people as their king. On and on and on, in, in the way the Bible looks at things, a representative is everything. And you can't understand Christianity. As hard as it is for us to connect with it because of our own place, you can't understand Christianity without understanding the idea of Jesus standing for us. And I think this passage helps, uh, helps us get through some of the layers that separate us from that whole idea and really connect with it, even from our own experience. It gives us three different images for Jesus standing for us, being our representative. And I think each of these images, even though there's some repetition to them, they add a new layer that helps us understand how this works a little bit better. So I want to go over each of the images, three of them. Christ, our brother, which I've already mentioned some about. Christ as our champion who fights for us. And Christ is our high priest who offers a sacrifice for us that makes us holy. Those are the three images for Jesus standing for us. First of all, this is, the, this is the baseline. This is the one that's going to come up that really all the other images only make sense if he's first our brother. Jesus is our brother. It comes out at the very beginning of the passage. Verse 11 talks about, uh, talks about us having the same source with Jesus, those who he sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source, and that's why he's not afraid to, to call them brothers. And then these passages from the Old Testament just sort of prove it. There are times where the speaker is speaking of those who are around him as his children or as, as fellow brothers. He's not ashamed to call them brothers. And then, of course, in verse 17, we're told that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So this, key, this is a key concept. We've got to unpack it a little bit. Think back in, in that time. Families were viewed as units, right, who sort of stood or fell together in, in much, not, maybe not in a universal sense, but much more so than, than we do today. A brother, especially the elder brother, who we're meant to see here in Jesus, was the one who stood for the family, right, the heir, the one who, who would carry on the name and the identity of that family, and the one who had responsibility for how the other members of the family acted, the one who's, who sort of stood for them. Ultimately, this is where he starts because this is, this is the domino that's got to fall first before any of the rest makes sense. Jesus, first of all, has to be one of us, a part of our family who has the right to stand for us. And as different as this view of family is, I don't actually think that this view of being, having someone else represent you is that different from other things that we experience. So think about, I mean, the Olympics are coming up, right? I love the Olympics. Love the games. Uh, and in and, and the summer, we're going to have them again. Think about the eligibility requirements, right? Who gets to stand for America? I mean, one of the reasons that we're so bad at soccer is that we don't have, we don't have the right to spend the money that we have to pay someone from Latin America or Europe to come and play on our team because they don't represent us, right? They're not citizens. They don't have the right to play for the American team. If it was all, if it was all about money, we could pay Beckham to come over here and not just play in the MLS but to actually play for our national team. But we can't do that. He has to represent the country that he's from. He has to be one of us before he can represent us. Or think about it politically. Our political system has the same system in place. It's not quite as rigid as the Olympic Games, but there's still residency requirements, right, before someone can, can actually serve as a representative in Congress for the place that they serve. I remember, uh, I remember back, I guess it was the 2000 election. Wasn't that the election where Hillary Clinton uh, ran for senator in New York? And 
And I remember there being a, a big controversy over that uh, because, wait a second, didn't you spend the last eight years in D.C.? And, and before that, weren't you in Arkansas? But now you're going to be the senator of New York, right? And they worked it all out somehow, I don't know. But, but the controversy shows that we actually do expect someone to, for somebody to represent an entity has to be part of that entity in some, in some way. That's what the author's getting at here. Jesus, to represent us, has to be one of us. He has to be our brother. Now, brother as the baseline image helps us see where the author goes next. The next image is what we'll call the image of a champion. Now, that word doesn't actually come up in the passage. You're going to have to bear with me here. But in verse 10, this word found, my, my translation, I don't know which one you, you guys are using. My translation says, the founder of their salvation it was fitting that God had to make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Yours may say author, initiator. It's a word that really can go in several different ways and actually just has multiple layers of meaning at the same time. And one of them that multiple uh, experts pointed me to in my reading this week was the image of a champion, of somebody who goes ahead of his army and fights for them, represents them in battle. Now think back to... Maybe you didn't like Homer. Maybe you didn't have to read him in college. I don't know. But if you did, if you read Homer's Iliad, what happens a lot of times when, the, when these massive armies are drawn up against each other for battle is that they wouldn't just go at each other. That happened a lot too. But, but sometimes they wouldn't just go at each other in this sort of chaos of ancient warfare. Instead, they had their own champions, like their, their studs, who they would send into a sort of octagon to battle it out on behalf of the armies that they represented, right? And the winner of that individual battle, his army wins that day's fighting. They don't have to fight each other after that because it was settled by their champions, their representatives. Maybe another story that would be more familiar to you is the, the story of David and Goliath in the Old Testament. Goliath was this ultimate champion for Israel's enemies, and he kept calling on someone to represent the people of God in battle before their chief enemy. And finally, it's David. David goes out to battle with him, the rest of his fellow Israelites don't have to do it because he's doing it for them. And when he kills Goliath, Israel wins the battle that day, right? And they completely rout the army. The point is, this in the ancient world especially, there was this clear vision of someone who could act on behalf of those that he represents to fight their enemies for them so that they wouldn't have to do that. That's the exact image that this author is trying to point us to, not just through that word in verse 10 but through the picture that he draws for us in verses 14 and 15. We're not going to spend much time here this morning because we looked at this a good bit last week, but in verses 14 and 15, what we, what, what's drawn for us is the image of Jesus as our champion fighting our greatest enemy on our behalf. He becomes one of us so that he has the right to stand for us. He had to be part of our army first, part of our family. But now that he's part of our family, he has the right to represent us in battle. In verse 14, says that he partook of the same things, he became one of us, that, the purpose being, through death he might destroy the one who held the power of death. Jesus fights with our ultimate enemy as our champion to defeat what we could not defeat on our own. That's the picture there. Because he dies, he robs death of its power. And he promises to us that we don't have to fear it anymore. So if, if the brother image, image number one, is about Jesus being able to represent us, he gets to stand for us, then this image get clo gets closer to how he represents us. 
what he does as our representative. And it's, it's the elimination of what we fear most. This verse 15 describes us as in a kind of slavery to the fear of death. And, and even if you don't walk around with this sort of morbid sense every day, I think, I think we could argue that all of our fears, ultimately, if you trace them back far enough, spring from that fear as the sort of mother of all fears. Where all of our fears are about preservation, about sustenance, about the ability to keep on living and put food on the table. And our fears ultimately trace back to, to that one, and Jesus has wiped it clean. Our brother is our champion. That's the point. Final image. We've got the image of Jesus as our brother, Jesus as our champion. And the last image that the text gives us is Jesus as our high priest. And this helps us get even closer to why our champion and our brother, the one who stands for us, had to suffer. We can imagine someone fighting for us as our brother and cutting off the head of our enemy, like David cut off the head of Goliath, and that being that, right? But remember back to verse 10, which said that, If God was going to save us, if he was going to usher our family into glory, bringing many sons to glory, then the one who was going to do that, the pioneer, the champion, had to suffer. Why? This final image helps us with that. Much of the rest of Hebrews is about trying to explain Jesus as a high priest who offers himself as a sacrifice for us. I think in this passage... What we're meant to ask is, how could Jesus defeat death by dying? That's what verse 14 says. Through death, through his own death, he defeats death. How does that work? This next image helps us understand that. Pulling from the whole of the New Testament, we know that the the power of death is not arbitrary and it's not eternal. Death is actually an imposter that came into the world God had made and and disrupted it. And what brought it into the world, what gave it its power and turned it loose to wreak havoc was sin. Sin is a kind of rebellion against God's authority. Death is a kind of punishment on that sin that runs it out of the world, literally runs that rebellion out of the world. But without sin, there's no death. That's the the story in Genesis. That's the way Paul talks about it in Romans. And that's what this author to Hebrews understands too. So for Jesus to kill death, he had to remove the problem of sin. And if Jesus was going to remove the problem of sin, he wasn't going to be able to to triumph over it through a feat of strength. He was going to have to triumph over it by getting rid of the sin. And the only way you can get rid of the sin is to absorb the punishment that that sin is due. That's the idea that comes out in verse 17. He had to be made like us, that's what we've already talked about, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And what would he do as our high priest? He would make propitiation for the sins of the people. He would make propitiation for the sins of the people. What this means, what this word propitiation is getting at, not a word that you would use in normal conversation, but one of the most important words in all the Bible. It it refers specifically to the wrath of God towards sin being diverted or absorbed by something other than the one to whom it was due. It's a word that comes up in the Old Testament, all this sacrificial system that Israel used to try to get past the fact that they had failed to obey the law. These sacrifices were acts of propitiation, where God puts the iniquity of his people onto this lamb or whatever else it might have been, 
and it dies so that Israel doesn't have to. But those things only pointed forward. They had to be repeated every single year because they weren't ultimately effective. Something else had to come along to remove the problem of human sin. And it couldn't come from us because we were all guilty. We, we ourselves deserved what we were to get. So Jesus comes along, our brother, our champion. And he gets rid of the power of death because he gets rid of the sin that lies behind it. Because in his life, a life given that wasn't already owed, there is a sacrifice so perfect that it fully erases our sin and fully absorbs the punishment that a just and holy God had to pour out on our sin. That's the idea of Jesus serving as our, as our high priest. He gets rid of death's power by get, getting rid of the sin that lies behind it. Now, if you're here this morning and you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're here this morning and you are, I recognize that this could seem silly and, and barbaric and even petty of God to require this kind of thing, right? But consider that what if, what if the one who made you, if the one who gave you the sense of justice that gets outraged when you read about oppression and genocide and racism and what if, what, if the, what if the God who made you and gave you that sense of justice is also outraged? What if your desire for justice is just a reflection of his desire for justice? And what if for any justice to be possible, he finally has to uphold it? And what if he were to hold you accountable for the times that you've been unjust, when you failed your own standards, when you failed the standards that you hold other people to. You know, there's all, we, we've all been wronged by others. They have failed to keep the standards that we hold them to in their treatment of us. And we all know, if we're honest with ourselves, that there are times where we have failed to keep those same standards. That's what makes us hypocrites at root. What if God, the one who ultimately holds standards, what if he could sooner cease to exist than let your sin go? If that's true, if that's true, then please honestly ask yourself this. Who is standing for you? Who is standing for you? The beautiful message of this passage is that Jesus became one of us. He became our brother so that he could fight for us, so that he could remove the enemy that is beyond our power to remove, the enemy whose whose coming judgment on us was brought on by our own sin. And he could do that because he has the power to wipe away the sin that brings it on. That's the Jesus this passage offers to us and asks us to trust and to obey. Now, just to, to tie this point up, our authors painted us a picture, right? A picture of Jesus meant to make us love him and trust in him. It's... It's a picture of Jesus as our brother who had to be one of us, to be responsible for us, to act as our representative. It's a picture of Jesus who, as our brother, fights for us as our champion. He is our chosen one, the one designated to take on the enemy that we could not conquer. And to defeat our enemy as champion, he had to be our priest, to remove the stain of our sin, to absorb the punishment that was due to our sin. Let me try to sum up this portrait of Jesus with another one that might actually be even more familiar to you. I want to do it with a contrast to a familiar story 
uh, that Jesus tells, the story of the prodigal son. It's one of the Bible's most famous portraits of brotherhood, of what brotherhood is like. You're probably familiar with it. It's the story of a father and two sons. One of these sons, the younger one, rejects the loving provision of his father. He takes and exploits his father's resources rather than receiving them with gratitude. He exploits them and runs off his own way, insulting his father, dishonoring him, choosing to go outside of his protection and to, to, to make it better on his own. Of course, this younger son gets what he asks for. He blows through his money. He finds himself without the ability to even put a roof over his head or food on his table. He's, he's, he's actually amid living among the pigs and eating the, what the pigs leave over, which is not a whole lot. Of course, the beautiful image of the gospel that comes through in that story is that when he comes home, after getting what he deserved, his father still welcomes him with open arms. He loves him. One of the things that, that Tim Keller has really helped me to see, and probably many of you in his book called The Prodigal God, is that there's actually another brother in the story that's just as prominent as the younger brother who the story's named for. That there's also this elder brother, right? He's the one who stayed behind, who did everything like he was supposed to. He was the perfect son. He trusted his father. He represented the family with honor. He and, and, and try to help them move past the shame of what the younger brother had done. He waited to receive his inheritance until the timing that his father chooses. He did everything right. He was the perfect brother, perfect son. But when his brother left, he just let him go. He was the representative for his family. He was the heir. He was the elder brother. But he stayed home. And took no responsibility. He was ashamed of his younger brother. He disassociated himself from his younger brother. And when his brother returned, he resented him. He was jealous of him. He was thoroughly self-centered in his response to them. Not so our elder brother. Imagine the same scenario. Put, put yourself in the place of the younger brother. And you get a good picture of what we have done to our father. We were created by him out of love and given his image to bear it with honor and dignity. We were promised provision if we would trust in him, and yet we exploited the resources that he gave us, our breath, our energy, our life, and we used them for our own purposes and not his. And ultimately, we've probably all, to some degree or another, found ourselves exactly where the younger brother found himself, washed up, unsatisfied, getting what we deserve, what our actions, where our actions had led us. But our brother stands for us. He comes to find us where we lost ourselves. He is our pioneer who hacks through the jungle that we had lost ourselves in and creates a path home for us. He is our champion who fights off the enemies that we had sold ourselves to. He is our priest who gives himself for us to make us holy and he succeeds, just as the older brother succeeded in the prodigal son. He succeeds, but he succeeds and does everything right for us. So that for all our flaws, verse 11 says, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. 
That's the image of our suffering brother who stands for us, and it's a beautiful one. But the author doesn't stop there. I think there's another angle we gotta, we got to uncover a little bit before we fully appreciate what Jesus offers us. Because his suffering didn't just accomplish this primary thing of making us holy to enter into the family that God has called us into. It does that. And that's primarily what he's for, and that's what most of the passage is given to. But one thing that we would be fair in asking is, if, if Jesus has solved the problem of our death and the problem that we deserve in eternal judgment, that's great, and that gives us hope, and it, and it shapes how we view our world and how we live in it, but, but we need help now because we don't live in that world yet, and our, our, our adoption into God's family feels incomplete so far in our experience because we still struggle with sin that lives in us, and we're, we're still wooed by the voices of alternate affections, wooing us, calling us to love this thing or that thing other than Jesus. We struggle. We suffer. We're tempted. And what the author to Hebrews tells us is that Jesus' death, his suffering, his death and everything that, all the suffering that led up to it is not merely to defeat our ultimate enemy, death, but it's also to give us a resource that we can draw from now in this life as we wait for what's set before us. Our elder brother not just stands for us, but also goes before us. He has experienced all things that we experience first. He has survived them, and he exists and lives now to give us help so that we can follow him. That's the point of verse 18. Let me just read it again for you. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. I think that's an interesting way of just saying that everything Jesus went through, all the temptations, all the sufferings, his life, especially his death, but everything that led up to his death, he went through so that now on the back side of it, he can help us as we go through exactly the same things. It's, 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 it's a passage about empathy. Understanding what it's like to be someone else because you've been there. Empathy is something that's familiar to us. It's something you hear Something you hear guys who fought in war together talk about, right? You listen to these World War II guys. They can't, they can't really talk about what it was like to be at Bastogne, the Battle of the Bulge, unless they're talking to someone who was there, who knew what it was like to dig out those foxholes and to sit there all night in between bombings in sub-zero temperatures. That's just not something you can bring someone else into unless you've been there. So they look for guys who have empathy. We hear the same thing for less dramatic kinds of experiences. Someone who lived in a foreign country before is going to have a, a bigger ability to talk about what that's like to live somewhere else with someone else who has also lived in those countries. Someone who's run a marathon is going to be able to talk about what it's like to hit the 18 to 20 mile range in a marathon and survive it and push through it if, that, if, if they're talking to someone who's also been there. We've all experienced this in some sense. The point here is that in a life of suffering that led to his death, along the way, Jesus knew from experience everything that we suffer through. He made it. He survived. He triumphs. And now he lives and, and exists just to, to help us, to encourage us, and to, to pull us along with him. I think it's a beautiful expansion on the brotherhood thing. I think we see this in brotherhood, don't we? I think even something as simple as two young brothers 
and an older brother who has learned how to jump off the diving board, right? And a younger brother who's still in floaties and is afraid of it. I've been that brother. I've seen it. We've all seen something like that. And you see the older brother jumping again and again, promising that younger sibling that it's going to be okay. Look, I'll prove it to you. I've done it. The younger sibling's terrified because it's something that's completely unfamiliar. They don't have an experience. They don't know what it's like. But they have this brother who has been through it to help them on. Older brothers are the ones who go to college first. And they get to call home and say, you know what, it is hard, but you'll survive it. You can, you can do it. And a good older brother is one who is not afraid to go first, to plunge into the unknown, to take that hit of the unknown, and to exist now to help younger siblings along. That's the picture that we get of Jesus. That's the picture, I think, in verse 18. But just to add one more layer to this idea of Jesus as our older sibling who helps us along, I want to take you back to the beginning of this passage, to one of the quotations of the Old Testament. I know we haven't looked at these very closely. They're a little bit strange, and they would take a long time to talk about. It's just one of those decisions you have to make about how you're going to allocate your time in, in, a, in a longer text like this. But I do want to at least talk about this first one because it helps make this point that I'm trying to make. Jesus, our older brother who has suffered everything that we could suffer and then some, exists now to tell us it's going to be okay and to help us along as we experience what he did. This, this first quotation from the Old Testament, I think, reinforces that point. Verse 12, or verse 11 says, That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. It establishes that we're, we're one of him. We're all of the same cloth. Saying, and then the quote, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. What's that about? It's a reference to Psalm 22. Now, if you're familiar with Psalm 22, probably you know it best because Jesus quotes it on the cross. It's a psalm that gets interpreted by Christians early on as a reference to the Messiah and to his suffering because the first 20-something verses of that psalm are all about anguish. They're about they're about the, the psalmist, the writer, whoever's perspective it is, crying out from the depths of his soul, a soul about to break because of the anguish of suffering and torment and wondering where God is. That's the first part of the psalm. And then with the verse quoted here, the psalm takes a turn. Having survived the suffering and found God to be true to his word, the psalmist says, I will tell of your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Do you see what's going on there? It pictures one suffering. In this case, applied to the Messiah, one suffering for us. Wondering where God is. Where, ha where have you gone? Why have you forsaken me? Enduring that suffering, moving through it, triumphing over it and then looking back to tell those who haven't yet come that God held true. And he says, I will tell of your name. He's talking about everything that God is known for, who God is, his character as one who is powerful and loving and merciful and compassionate, whose steadfast love never ceases. I will tell of your name to my brothers. I think the reason that the author of the Hebrews, in this passage in particular, sees this as something worth citing 
is that it points us to the fact that through his suffering, Jesus, who stands for us, now also exists as one who has gone before us, who has seen God's mercy to be true, his promises to be real and trustworthy, and now is able to look back to us and say, I have been there. What you are experiencing now is not new to me. I know what it's like. And look at the fact that I am alive now, that I have triumphed over the grave, and see in that fact all that you need to know about whether God is able to sustain you. I think that's why he goes there. Just to drive this home, this is the last thing I'll say. Think about examples in Jesus' life that give him the credibility to serve as one who encourages you when you suffer. We could go into any number of places to the temptations of Jesus. The claim that this author is saying is that he suffered when he was tempted, and now he gets to help you when you're tempted. What might that look like? One of my biggest temptations has always been that I love the praise of other people. I am a classic people pleaser, and any of you know that about me, or know me, know that about me. I'm guessing I'm not alone. That's probably true of a lot of you. I mean, even if you're not a people pleaser, you love applause. Come on. I'd say it's one of our most devastating temptations that we face and causes us some of our greatest suffering. Almost nothing hurts as bad as knowing that someone that someone doesn't like you, that you failed expectations, that you aren't who you wanted to be. Jesus knew that temptation as well. Think back to his encounter with the devil in the wilderness. The devil offers him a series of temptations, trying to get him to abandon his plan, to go through his whole life sinlessly and ultimately die for his people. One of the, one of the first things the devil throws at him is, if you will worship me now, just bow to me, I'll give you everything you see. They're up on top of this mountain, they look out and they see basically a whole world out there full of people, a kingdom. It's all yours. Just worship me. He's appealing to his sense of, of his, his deep desire for the, the praise of other people. Didn't stop there. Think about Jesus' ministry. He went into these towns, started healing people. All of a sudden, he's a rock star. People are flocking to him from all over the region, begging just to see him, just to even touch the fringe of his cloak. That's the kind of status that Jesus had in these towns. And his disciples come to him and say, come to him out into the wilderness where he's gone to pray and say, come back. All these people are back here. This is great. It's like a revival's breaking out. They all want you. And Jesus says, no, that's not what I came here for. I didn't come here for their acclaim. I've got to go. Ultimately to preach the gospel, but even more, he's, he's got to go and die. Think about even the few days before his death. He rides into Jerusalem, and there are people waving palm branches and screaming, Hosanna. He knows what it is to be praised. He could have stopped right there. He could have rallied them around as an army and ousted the powers that were in Jerusalem. He could have pulled that off. He could have marshaled legions of angels to come down and take over. He knew the praise of people. He knew what it felt like. But he also knew that it was fickle, that ultimately the kind of praise he was getting wasn't going to last. He knew that the same ones crying Hosanna one day would be crying crucify him the next day. He knew what all of us need to learn, what he's there to help us learn as we're tempted, that the, that the praise of other people, that the approval of anyone but God himself whose will we are here to do is something you cannot afford to build your life on because it is not a stable foundation. It crumbles. It comes one day and it's gone the next. Jesus knew it. And he exists now to help us see it. Another example. One of the things we commonly struggle with is, is a sense of, of loneliness and 
betrayal that comes when friends abandon us or, or fail to meet up with our expectations. And for some of you, you know it really deeply. You know families who have turned their backs on you. Others of you, it's just been, maybe it's just something as seemingly mild as just friends who haven't been there for you in the way that they should have been. We all know at whatever level, interrelationally, we know what it is to be let down. Jesus knew this too. Jesus was abandoned by those that he had invested every day of his entire ministry in. One small group of men whom he poured into day in and day out. And at the very moment that he needed them most, the moment of crisis, they abandoned him and left him to die alone. Jesus knows what it is to be abandoned, and he chose it because by his abandonment, by all of his friends, and ultimately by his father himself, Jesus now stands with the promise that we will never be abandoned because he has accomplished for us, he has written in his own blood a covenant for us that promises the love of God that nothing can shake, nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, nothing under the earth. Jesus knows what that is, he knows what the, the real pain that's going to be caused when we experience that, but he stands now to help us by reminding us this is not who you are. Ultimately, you will never be abandoned by your father. And we could, we could go on. We could go on. Jesus knows what it is to question the purposes of God in gut-wrenching circumstances. He knows what it is to be falsely accused. He knows what physical pain is like. He knows deeply what it is to be the object of injustice. But the last thing I want to say, just to return to last week's emphasis and the primary point of this paragraph, Jesus knows what it is to die. Jesus knows what it is to die. A famous psychiatrist, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the, the one who, who gave us the stages of grief and dying that you might be familiar with, the stages you have to move through. One of the things she notices in that book and other writings something that really should be familiar to all of us, one of the biggest sources of fear in death, one of the reasons that we dread it so badly, is that it's unfamiliar to us. We just don't know what that's going to be like. What will, what, will the, what will the experience itself lead to, both in the act of death, so to speak, and in, and in the after? We just don't know. We haven't been through it before. We haven't experienced it. And we can't rely on others who would normally be our guides in this scenario, Right? Normally, for things that are unfamiliar to us, we ask our parents or friends who have been there, or siblings, an older brother. But when it comes to death, anyone who's actually experienced it is no longer there as a resource for us. It's just the way it works. But not our older brother. Not our pioneer, our champion, the one who wasn't afraid to go before us. He went through it, and he lives now on the other side. And he offers us his resurrection as the proof that we don't need to fear. That death, our ultimate enemy, the thing that is most mysterious to us in all of human experience, is an enemy that Jesus has fully experienced, an enemy whose blows he has fully absorbed, and an enemy that he has vanquished and now lives forever to call us to himself beyond the fear that naturally creeps into our minds when we think about the grave to promise us that because he lives, we will live. Our older brother stands for us, but he also goes before us and exists now to help us. What are you afraid of? What are you tempted by? What are you suffering through this morning or struggling with? I promise you, your brother has been there. 
He knows where you are. And his empathy with you is not a powerless empathy. It is the empathy of one who has not just been there, been subjected to those things, but one who chose them and triumphed over them and now lives to help you. So look to him. Father, would you help us? Thank you so much that you've not left us alone. You've come for us. You've fought for us. You have won us by the blood of your son. But even now, as we look ahead to heaven, you haven't left us alone. You have given us the promised one, the spirit who is to guide us and comfort us and to bring to our minds the things that Jesus taught us. Ultimately, you have left us your son who lives now forever beyond the threat of the grave to promise us that life is possible if we will just trust to him. So now what we ask for is trust. Would you help us by the power of your spirit to draw from the resources that Jesus offers? It's so abstract to us. How do we come to someone that we can't see and draw from him? We don't know. We only know to pray. We only know to trust that he can help us even if it's beyond our our understanding or our ability to see where and how he helps us. So we just commit ourselves into the hands of our brother and ask for more faith in Jesus' name. Amen.